0: Please take your Bibles and open to the book of Judges chapter 11, Judges chapter 11. According to what claims to be the most accurate studies, the average human being speaks somewhere around 16,000 words a day, 16,000 words. if you are awake on average 16 hours a day, that means you speak 1,000 words an hour. Some of you are looking at the people beside you, going like, "You're 28,000." Uh, <laughs> I see what you're doing. Uh, but if the average is 16,000, that means a thousand words an hour, 16 words a minute, a quarter of a word per second. And friends, that is dangerous, because the more you talk, the more likely it is you will end up in trouble. How do I know? Because Solomon said this. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That's Proverbs 10, verse 19, which means it is really hard to say 16,000 words and not sin in Judges chapter 11 the words people speak cause very sad and troubling outcomes all of them are recorded here for us to read and in a way the story of Jephthah is shaped by the speeches and the statements of the various characters So, we've entitled this sermon, When Your Words Get You Into Trouble, and I don't want to imply that this text is only talking about words, but when you read the narrative, the story of Jephthah, you, you come to see that it's the words people are speaking that are shaping very dramatically different outcomes. Now, As soon as you start looking at Jephthah, you are faced with a question, and it's a perplexing question. Is Jephthah, the main character of this narrative, is he a brutal, ambitious, self-centered, rash warlord? That's a very legitimate option. Or is he a humble, Yahweh-fearing, slightly flawed deliverer? Which I think is also a very legitimate option. But if you look at those two options, you say, hold on a second, those are very opposite. (laughs) Those are very different from one another. And the trouble is both views have a lot to support themselves, but they can't both be true. And so I'm gonna argue for the latter, the good guy version, and I'll explain why. But I just wanna say right up front, if you think it's the bad guy version, that's fine, and you probably have good reasons for it. I just think there's more good reasons for the good guy version than there is for the bad guy version. What's clear as you go through this story is that words matter. Each section of the story has a speech upon which the destiny of people's lives are determined. That means that your words matter and your words can get you into trouble. So I'll divide the story of Jephthah into seven parts. The first one is this, some words cut like a knife. Some words cut like a knife. Uh, Verse 1, Jephthah's story begins with his half-brothers using their words to cut him off. Verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead, his dad, was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife, not the prostitute, but the wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And there's a whole lot of things to see here that are very important, but I'll just point out three about Jephthah or Jeff. <laughs> uh, first of all, he's, he's a labeled guy, right? He's the illegitimate child of a prominent citizen. And Gilead's not the first man to, to indulge himself in this way. Many men of means have sired children out of wedlock. Uh, Gilead, named after the place where he was born, Gilead, um, has a prostitute. And by that prostitute is given birth a son. And this son is now labeled, right? He's the son of the prostitute. He's not only a labeled man, but he's, this leads to him being a rejected man. His brothers, and as we'll see, presumably the elders of the town in which he grew up, they chase him out of town, and they use his origin, which, by the way, is no fault of his own. (laughs) They use Jephthah's origin to squeeze him out of inheritance. And how those words of his brother must have cut, you're the son of another woman, you're the son of a prostitute. However, Jephthah shows himself to also be a very resourceful man. He moves into the northern regions of Gilead, Tov is up in the top part there, and there he gleans, it's the word that's used there, from the region, fellow nobodies. The ESV translates that word worthless. That's imputing a little bit of meaning into the word. The word is simply vain or empty. As and an I would take it to mean they're just men who were of no value to society. They're outcasts, just like Jephthah. Men who had been scorned, men who had been abandoned. And together, they they make up this kind of mercenary army. Jephthah's called here. Did you you note it there? He's a mighty warrior in verse 1. And so likely with his little band of mercenaries, he's selling his services to whoever needs them. The most modern example of this, if it's foreign idea to you, would be the whole Wagner group in the war of Russia against Ukraine, um, whose leader seems to have met his demise this week. It's a for hire army made up of outcasts, the unimportant. It's, these kinds of armies are made up of the men who have nothing to lose. Like David's original mighty men. Uh, They were just a bunch of guys who had been cut off from society and they had nothing to lose. I'll put in my lot with David. In all of this, words that cut, cut Jephthah off from polite society. That takes us to number two. Some words create opportunity. So verse four, after a time the Ammonites made war against Israel. Now, this is not a surprise to us if we've been reading through the book of Judges, because in chapter 10, we were told uh, that Gilead was going to get crushed by the Ammonites. Why was Gilead getting crushed by the Ammonites? Because Gilead, like the rest of Israel, had turned their back on Yahweh and turned toward idols, toward fake gods. And because they're in a covenant relationship with the real God, the real God had said, if you turn your back on me, I'm gonna bring hardship into your life until you turn back to me. So Judges 10, verse 17, just go back a bit. The Ammonites were called to arms, they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, they encamped at Mizpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who's the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. That's how you lure someone into a losing battle usually. (laughs) He's like, hey, you can be general, and when you're done, you can rule over us. That takes us to Jephthah's story in uh, chapter 11, now verse 5. When the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went. They go up to Tob to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. So you got the elders of Gilead asking Jephthah to be their leader. A leader is a military commander, like a general. So the words of the elders create an opportunity for Jephthah. And your first question should be, well, why him? And that's where verses 1 to 3 help us out, because instead of looking to Yahweh, Israel is doing what they always seem to do. They look for a human being that might deliver them, someone who looks powerful. And perhaps, we don't know this, this is pure speculation, perhaps Jephthah's mercenary army had even been hired by the Gileadites in the past. We don't know that, we're never told that. What we can be sure of is that his proven military success makes him the ideal candidate to lead the full army of Israel against the Ammonites. But verse seven, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, the ones who were asking him to to come be their general, Hold on a second. We didn't say that. I I put that in there. (laughs) He said, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? Now you can imagine there's a couple ways you could read that, right? But Jephthah's words create an opportunity now for the town elders. It's like Jephthah looks at them and he says, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Town Clerk, Um, You took no interest in me when I was just the illegitimate son of Gilead. When my brothers disowned me and kicked me out, you were participating in that. Why are you coming to me now? Presumably, this is the place where the elders of the town ought to have repented and asked his forgiveness and been restored. But instead, verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And I think this is sort of a political move. The, the politicians are upping the ante. It's like they're looking at Jephthah and saying, that's a great question, Jeff. We'll tell you, uh, We'll tell you why we're here. Did we say we wanted you to be our general? No, no, no. What we meant to say is we want you to be our president. We want you to be our prime minister. We want you to be the ruler. Come, fight off the bad guys, and then be our commander-in-chief. You can have it all. And Jephthah responds with a word of promise. Verse 9, he said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and Yahweh gives them over to me, I'll be your head. All right, I'll be your president, your commander-in-chief. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went and the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader, both general and president, head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. Now this is a really important place to pause in the Jephthah narrative and note the fact that Jephthah is the one who brings up Yahweh. The elders of Gilead didn't. In fact, Jephthah is the one who seems to say that the only way the Ammonites are going to be beaten is if Yahweh provides the victory. And then it is swearing-in ceremony as head and leader, as general and president. Jephthah is the one who makes clear with his words that he's a Yahweh man, not a Baal man. Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. So Jephthah becomes president, commander-in-chief of Gilead. And there are these hints in the text that he's perhaps a godly kind of fellow. He's the one who brings up the name of Yahweh. He points the Gileadites to Yahweh as the one who's going to be their deliverer. And, there's, and arguing from silence is always dangerous. But there are things that he does not do. <laughs> he doesn't show up in town and kill all his brothers who had kicked him out. He doesn't do what Abimelech did when Abimelech was making uh, an agreement with Israel and saying, all right, I'll make this contract with you, but if you renege, I'll burn you to the ground. (laughs) So it could be off, but there seems to me to be indicators here that there's more to Jephthah than his origin story. Friend, maybe your own origin story is a little bit cloudy. Not sure of who your dad was or you know that your conception into life was the result of infidelity or immorality or even worse, something like rape. Well, that does not mean that you are in any way less valuable than the person who comes from a family with a loving mother and father. Your value is not determined by your origin, but by your maker. And if you're created in the image of God, which you are if you are human, then you are of great value. Value comes by the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, not the circumstances surrounding it. I think Jephthah is an example of a man who looked to God in spite of the people around him, giving him lots of reasons to look away from God. Your life is not determined by your circumstances. Jephthah is one of the many people in this book who prove that. That takes us to the third episode in the story, which is this. Some words are bathed in lies. So what follows in verses 11 down to verse 28 is a record of diplomacy. Jephthah is doing his best to keep Israel out of war. He's not a warmonger. He doesn't want to go up against the Ammonites. And so he sends word to the king of the Ammonites to open up political discussions. Now for the sake of getting through the entire episode, which is kind of complicated, because part of what happens here is the king of Ammon gets his history wrong. So you're reading you're like, what? And, and so if you want, I can lead you to books that will help explain all that. It just seemed like a little too much detail and a little bit too complicated for our purposes this morning. I'll just summarize. but. Jephthah opens discussions in verse 12 by saying, He sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, What do you have against me that you've come to fight against, come, come to me to fight against my land? My land is important. It's a geographical beef. He's trying to take back land. The king of Ammon is. And the Ammonite king answers with what we would call revisionist history a bunch of make-believe, really. He just invents some stuff, and he puts it into real history. That's why it's kind of confusing. He recasts the last few hundred years, and Jephthah does not bite. I really like how, if you want a book, Peter Bloomfield's little commentary on the book of Judges does an excellent job of summarizing Jephthah's response to the revisionist history of King Ammon. I'll give it to you in four quick little bits. First of all, he looks at the king of Ammon, and he says, check your history. This is verses 13 to 22 or so. You allege that we took this land from you. Hello, this land belonged to the Amorites when we got it, not the Ammonites, two entirely different peoples. So you're just inventing stuff. We didn't take it from you. We took it from the Amorites. (laughs) And there's a reason we took it from the Amorites, check your theology, that's number two, verses 21 to 23. Those rotten Amorites attacked us when we were just passing through, we sent, you know, terms of peace, we weren't gonna invade you, we just need to go through your land to get to where we're gonna go, and those lousy Amorites said, no way, and they attacked us, so we fought them and we obliterated them, and thereby we won their land. Which leads to number three, check your logic, King of Ammon. You say that your God, Shamash, won this land, which actually never happened, but we can prove that our God, Yahweh, did give us this land. And if this whole bit of logic that you're using, like, our God gave it to us, therefore it's ours. Well, if that applies to you, it most certainly applies to us. And by the way, ours lines up with reality, which leads to the fourth thing, Check your calendar, king of Ammon. We've lived in this land for 300 stinking years. And like today, you're going to show up and go, that's my land? I don't think so. You are making an illegitimate claim. In other words, Jephthah is very convincing. His argument is good. But the king of the Ammonites has no time for truth and no time for logic. He's got Israel down on the mat. It seems like a great time to him to invade and expand his ever-growing kingdom. And so when he gets word, when King Ammon is like, yeah, that ain't going to work, Jephthah answers with the courage of what I think is a godly man who knows he's in the right. This is what he says in verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So diplomatic efforts fail, but not because of Israel. The judge Jephthah, right, did you catch that? Invokes the judge Yahweh (laughs) and says justice will be done. Say a lot more about all of that, but we press on to number four. Some words lead to outcomes we would prefer to avoid. Some words lead to outcomes that we would prefer to avoid. Verse 29, then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah. Note that, the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So General General Jephthah gets to work. The despised son of Gilead is not raging in revenge. Just like others before and others after him, this judge, appointed savior, appointed deliverer by God, is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. You go back to Judges chapter 3 verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. Judges chapter 6 verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. You jump ahead to the story of Samson, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. Here the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. Jephthah is a Holy Spirit empowered savior or judge and his first act is to raise an army his own little band of mercenaries is not gonna be enough so he travels through Gilead into Manasseh he's gathering soldiers then back to where he's gonna face off against the Ammonites but before he launches his assault on the Ammonites he the judge the guy who has the spirit of Yahweh upon him makes a vow to Yahweh verse 30 Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh, to the Lord, and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, we will return to that vow in a minute. But first, look at the massive and yet barely mentioned victory, verse 32. So Jethro crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as abel with a great blow so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. This is not some like meager territorial skirmish. This is a massive victory, a decisive victory that brought years of misery to end and brought years of peace for the nation. This is the kind of victory that you write about in a song like Deborah wrote about. It's a kind of victory that you, you have a big celebration or coronation ceremony or declare a national holiday. And yet far from the victory parades and epic war songs, Jephthah's story meets a different conclusion. This takes us to number five. Some words must be kept no matter what. I said we'd come back to that vow that Jephthah made before he led Israel into battle. A vow he made to Yahweh. Vows are promises you make to God that you will fulfill should the Lord deliver you. David often says in the Psalms, I have fulfilled my vows before you. What's he saying? I was in this battle in the wilderness, and I made a vow that I would offer this particular sacrifice if you would give me victory. You gave me the victory. I'm going to go to the tabernacle, and I fulfill the vow. That's what they are. So here again is Jephthah's pre battle vow to Yahweh. Verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, If you will give me the Ammonites, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, so the victory, verse 32, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah makes a vow to who? To Yahweh. Now we know that Jephthah knows the law of God. His recounting of Israel's history and his war of words with the king of Ammon makes it clear. He understands Israel's history. He understands the law. And therefore Jephthah would know that human sacrifice was forbidden. Human sacrifice was part and parcel of Moloch worship, Baal worship. Uh, Jephthah's a Yahweh guy. Plus, Yahweh explicitly forbade human sacrifices in the law. So his vow that whatever or whoever comes out of his front door when he returns victorious, that that will be devoted to Yahweh. That's where he's making a vow. They will be devoted to Yahweh, not devoted to Baal, not devoted to Moloch, not devoted to Asherah. And that act of devotion will include what's called the whole burnt offering, or the burnt offering. You might remember when we went through the book of Exodus, we learned about the burnt offering. It's unique amongst all the sacrifices that Israel would make. Because in the burnt offering, the entire animal is slaughtered on the altar, bled out, cut into pieces, and all of it is burned. In all the other offerings, some of them are celebratory, and you take some for a feast with your family. In the other offerings, parts go to the priests, so they don't have to have side jobs, so they got something to eat. Uh, But in this particular offering, and this is the only one, the burnt offering, the whole thing is devoted to God. What is weird here is that Jephthah would consider making that particular sacrifice, the whole burnt offering, on Yahweh's altar with a human, let alone a human from his own household. So, if Jephthah is the conniving, manipulative, proud man that many suggest, I can conceive of that. It's it's as if he's, he's really out to twist Yahweh's arm. But my question, if that's the case, is would Yahweh let that kind of manipulation stand? Again, I argue from silence, but I think not. Plus, there are all these other things in the text that don't line up with a human sacrifice, even though that is definitely one way of reading this particular account. It's a very legitimate way, I wanna keep affirming that. It might even be the right way, I might be wrong, but I'm gonna tell you what I think is happening here, and I don't think it's just my 21st century squeamishness that's making me read things into the text. I think there's lots of things in the text that point this way. I'll give you five observations before we look at it in a little more detail. The first one is this. All the judges have their faults. That's across the board. But nowhere do we read of a worshiper of Malek or Baal being clothed with God's Spirit. So right away, that makes the idea of Jephthah offering a human sacrifice very, very strange. No follower of Yahweh would conceive of such a thing, let alone a man with the Spirit of God upon him. Secondly, after he comes home and... His daughter runs out to greet him and he tells her of the vow. Jephthah's daughter asks for two months on the mountains to, quote, mourn her virginity. And the most natural way to read that phrase, the mourning of her virginity, is not that she needs some time to mourn that she's going to die a virgin, but rather she wants to mourn that she's going to spend the rest of her life as a virgin. So when the text says in verse 39, she had never known a man, it seems to be pointing out the future, not just the past. And from this point forward, from the time she is devoted to God, she never knew a man. Thirdly, there is no mention in this text of, in either the making of the vow or the fulfillment of the vow, of it being wrong. I mean, do you recall when Gideon made the ephod? That was a well-intentioned, yet sinful act. And the Lord notes in that narrative, Judges 8.27, Gideon made an ephod of it, put it in his city in Ophrah, and and all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. God's making clear that was not good on Gideon's part. There's nothing in the text that says what Jephthah is doing is wrong. Fourthly, there are instances in the Old Testament of people being dedicated to Yahweh alive So you might think of Samuel who was left at the temple because his mother Hannah said, if if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to the Lord. Fifthly, there is also mention made offhandedly in the Old Testament of women serving at the tabernacle. Uh, Some of it was bad, (laughs) but some of it was good. And so we know that being given over to tabernacle service was a real thing for real men and real women. So I think you could take that phrase in verse 39, her father did with her according to the vow he had made as, a, as, as fulfilled in this kind of way, that he took her alive to serve at the tabernacle for the rest of her life. So the emphasis then on verse 31, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. I'm putting the emphasis here on shall be the Lord's, meaning devoted to Yahweh. She will become one of the women who works in the service of Yahweh at the tabernacle for the rest of her life but that leaves us with a huge problem, we'll call it the and problem. Verse 31 again, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Man, it would have been nice if it said or. (laughs) But it says and. The being devoted to God includes being offered up as a whole burnt offering. So I and some other commentators Think that Jephthah must have been using this idea of whole burnt offering language, using it symbolically. Like it was never his intention to actually sacrifice a human being, but rather to fully devote them to God, to hand them over entirely to the service of God. We use language this way sometimes. Your husband's late for dinner, you say I'm gonna kill him. You're not really gonna kill him. Uh, what you mean is you're gonna you know, inform him that that's inappropriate. So perhaps, perhaps this was the way Jephthah was using the burnt offering language. I'm not really going to offer a human sacrifice, but my devotion of the person will cost me dearly. Perhaps thinking it will be one of his servants. It's going to cost me dearly to give up a servant. Maybe, perhaps never thinking it might be his daughter. It's going to cost me like a whole burnt offering but I will give them up fully to the Lord. Now I'm gonna come back to this idea in a second, but I just wanna kind of retrace the story, this bit of the story really quick, if if I'm right, if this is correct, here's what happens. Jephthah returns home victoriously, a great victory. Jephthah's only child, his daughter, is the first one out the door. He, He goes, oh no, he tells her of the vow. She agrees that he cannot break a vow to Yahweh. She asks for two months to prepare herself for a life of celibacy in service to Yahweh, and then she is dedicated to the tabernacle for the rest of her life. It is like her whole life is offered up to Yahweh, and every year, at this season, at least for a little time in Israel's history, the young women of Israel take a long weekend to praise God because the word translated lament in verse 49 is just the word commemorate. The context determines whether it's lament or celebrate. And it could be that the girls are going out to, to commemorate in the sense of, wasn't she an excellent model? Excellent model of what? Someone who is entirely devoted to God. They're commemorating her act of worship. Now, the biggest problem with this view, all right, I'm telling you the biggest problem, is that whole burnt offering is never used anywhere else in the Bible like this, in a symbolic kind of way. It just isn't. This would be the only place. That doesn't make its potential use here in that way wrong. It just means we want to be really, really cautious. That's why I'm refusing to say this is the only way to understand the life of Jephthah. But if you look over the text again, I think this way of taking things makes a lot of sense. Verse 34, Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. There's a reason that's being stressed. It was also something he knew when he made the vow. Verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low you've become the cause of great trouble to me for I've opened my mouth to Yahweh and I cannot take back my vow. Since she was the only child, because unlike his dad, he's not using prostitutes. Since she was his only child, her devotion to the tabernacle spells the end of his line. She's not gonna have children. She'll never be pregnant. He'll have no descendants. It's a double hit. He loses his daughter, he loses his future. Verse 36, she said to him, my father, you've opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And I think from the look of it, Jephthah might have had family devotions. (laughs) Like she had categories for this. She's as concerned as he is that a vow to Yahweh would be fulfilled. God kept his side of the vow. You must keep yours, father, even though it includes me. Verse 37, so she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. It it would be, I think, it would be highly unusual to put a two-month delay on a vow fulfillment if it was something that could be done like one and done burnt offering of a person. God himself said, Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it for Yahweh your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin." You're not supposed to delay vow fulfillments. But I, I can conceive if the vow fulfillment is the surrender of a human being to a new life in service to Yahweh, the delay would make a little bit more sense. It would also make way more sense out of the fact that her mourning is over her endless virginity, not her lost life. It doesn't say she went up on the mountains to bemoan the fact she was going to die. She's bemoaning the fact that she is a virgin. A virgin. Verse 38, he said, go. And he went away for two months, and she departed, and she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. What was the vow? Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me shall be the Lord's. I want to stress those words. It could also mean he took her to the priests at the tabernacle, had her killed there, and had her body burned on the altar. It's just that that outcome seems so out of line with the rest of what we know about this particular judge and the way in which all these things were carried out. So the narrative goes on. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament or commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. As I said, I think this was kind of a short-lived custom among the real Yahweh worshipers in Israel. They're commemorating, here's what real devotion to God looks like. Psalm 15, we heard it recently, right? A man who, who, can, who can ascend to the holy hill and be, and dwell in your tent. He who makes a vow to his own hurt and keeps it. It's a righteous man. So the, the, the young women of Israel would go up on the mountains for four days and consider, am I totally devoted to God like Jephthah's daughter was? I don't think what's being held up here is, is her life of singleness, as if that's somehow better or more noble than a married life. What's being commemorated is that she willingly took on this single life out of devotion to Yahweh. She is totally devoted to God. Are you? And just when you think things in this story can't get any sadder, number six, some words show what you're made of. Certainly true for the dudes who make up the tribe of Ephraim, Judges 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why'd you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Uh, This logic is befuddling to me. (laughs) Hey, thanks for the great victory. We're going to kill you, (laughs) which is basically what they say. And it should sound familiar, right? Because if you go back to Judges chapter 8 and verse 1, the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, what is this you have done to us not to call us when you went out to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And Gideon got out of that mini civil war by appealing to the native pride and arrogance of the Ephraimites and they backed off. I think every family has a past. Everybody has somebody in their family they'd rather not you know about. And if you're Jewish and you're a descendant of Ephraim and you're going to a modern day like family reunion, Like maybe you just wear the hello, my name is Levi sticker and uh, not Levi Ephraim. And so somebody comes, oh, your name's Levi. Levi what? Like Levi Smith. Uh, Because you don't really want to be associated with the Ephraimites. These guys are bad guys. They're full of themselves. And maybe it's because Jephthah was used to being treated as a nobody that he has no respect for people who think they're somebodies. Jephthah said to them in verse 2, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. When I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand, crossed over against the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. Civil war. So Jephthah's solution to the Ephraimite problem is to fight them. And unlike Gideon, Jephthah is a mighty warrior right? All the way back in verse 1 of chapter 11. He was a mighty warrior before he became a judge. He knew how to fight. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. Because they, because the Ephraimites, this is what they had said. It's like a taunt. You fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. In the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim, Manasseh, we're the true Jews. We're the real tribes. You're just Gileadites. Another war of words. Whatever that statement means, it's offensive to Gileadite ears. Seems to be saying, you you men of Gilead are nobodies. Stay in your place. You're not so regal and as important as us Ephraimites. And Jephthah's army pays back the Ephraimites. Civil war erupts. Arrogant Ephraimites defeated they scatter, and like after every war, when you scatter, what do you try to do? You know, kids? You try to go home. That's where you want to go. And they, because of where the war took place, they have to cross a river. I don't know, kids, if you have, do you know what a bridge troll is? A bridge troll. So bridge trolls, I think, live under bridges. (laughs) And when you want to cross the bridge, they come out and say, none shall pass. They all sound like that. And then they say, you must do this, or say that. Well, the army of Gilead kinda acts like bridge trolls here. All the Ephraimites are trying to get home, and the only place to go home is through the fords of the Jordan, a place where you can sort of walk over the river. It's really shallow. (laughs) How are you gonna tell who the Ephraimites are and who a guy from Judah is? There's no way. They, They look alike, they dress alike, nobody's wearing military uniforms. Presumably, all the Ephraimites would, you know, come up and they'd say, "Are you from Ephraim?" Uh, "No." <laughs> "How are you going to tell?" When I moved to Los Angeles many, many years ago, complete strangers would like hear me talking in a store, and they would walk up and go, <laughs> "Say the moose about the hoose." <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't say the moose about the hoose. I had a distinct accent, being a Canadian, that I was not aware of until I went down to the Americans. Okay, I was making fun of my American friends. <laughs> Accents are not easily fixed. So, you're from Ephraim. And you walk up and the Gileadite says, are you from Ephraim? No, 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 I'm a Judah guy. Say, Shibboleth. Off with his head. One after another. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. When any of the fugitive Ephraim said, let me go over. The men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. Because he couldn't pronounce it right. All in all, between that war and all the guys you tried to get back, 42,000 men died. Number seven, last one. Some words are short, and so is this point. Verse seven, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead, which seems to me to be a very honorable end for a God-fearing judge. He is not the illegitimate son vanquished to the wilderness. He dies as a true son of Gilead and is given an honorable burial. Okay. So what are you supposed to do when your pastor tells you here's a part of your Bible that can mean possibly two very different things? Well, the best thing you can do is read your Bible. Read it, read it, read it, and try to understand it. And you may come to a different conclusion to me in this particular passage, and that's perfectly fine as long as both of us are holding our conclusions with very open hands. The picture I've painted for you of Jephthah is one of a God-fearing judge. Like every other judge, he had his failings and his faults, but I don't think his failings were as pronounced as they're sometimes made out to be. You cannot help but notice, this guy speaks a lot about Yahweh, at least as much of as other judges and much more than some other judges. And the only negative thing said about him is his origin story, to which he's not the least bit responsible, right? Perhaps when you read the story of Jephthah this way, it has much more to teach us about another father and his vow and his child. Because another father made a vow. He swore by himself that he would save all those who would have the faith of Abraham. And another father called on his only child to sacrifice himself to fulfill that vow. And after mourning all night on the mountain, that son willingly obeyed his father. In fact, that son was a kind of whole burnt offering so that God might save his people just as Jephthah's daughter sacrificed herself after God had politically saved his people. No wonder then we read of Father Jephthah in the New Testament. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. At its best, Jephthah's story pointed forward to a greater Savior to come, and that Savior came and when he came Jesus announced a way for even frail and faulty judges to be right with God forever with his words Jesus himself told us I am the good shepherd I lay down my life for my sheep I came that you may have life and have it abundantly have you devoted your whole life to Jesus that always starts with your words when you say something like I repent of all my sins I trust in you alone Jesus to be my savior can't 16 of your 16,000 words today be those? Let's pray together. And so, our God, we first ask that if our understanding of Jephthah's life is in any way incorrect, then show us these things and help us to see what is true and what is right. Perhaps if we might come to different conclusions on his life, give us grace to hold these conclusions lightly. As we've said many times, there are parts of our Bible to which there is no dispute, no confusion, no cloudiness. and There are the odd little bits where we've got to read between the lines a bit and try and figure out motivations. And in these parts of our scripture, Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding and help us in either way however we look at this particular narrative we pray that you might teach us most of all remind us of Christ remind us of our savior and in particular as we look to him now we want to prepare our own hearts to behold or to rather to hold bread and wine And as we do that, we're seeking to remember the one who came. We want to think of the one who wept in the garden. We want to think upon the one who willingly went to the cross, the one who could have called armies of angels for his rescue, but chose rather to suffer and die in our place. We want to think of the one who was ultimately victorious in the greatest battle ever fought, the one who can rescue from sin and Satan and hell forever. We want to think of the day when we will see our king face to face. May that day come quickly. We ask in his name. Amen.